you probably know some good stuff. Like, let us in on it. You've worked in hospitals and ICUs and the operating room for 20 years. Tell us something that most people don't know about surgeons. It really has become, in some practices, a it, it's like a fast food. It's like an assembly line, especially in today's wild west of medicine. Here, here's a tip. July is not the time to go into a university hospital. Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw, and welcome back to the Vibe Show. Today, if you could believe it, I'm actually going to interview a plastic surgeon And I'll tell you a funny story about him. He's become a good friend. His name is Tony Yoon. And I think he practices in New York City, but he lives in Michigan. Um, Probably practices both places. But he is a board-certified plastic surgeon, like graduated top of his class kind of a guy. But he's super humble. He tells it like it is. And you are going to hear some truth bombs in this episode that I think women who consider getting any kind of plastic surgery would pay lots of money to learn. This episode is juicy as heck. So you got to stick around because he has a blacklist of plastic surgery procedures that he really is willing to tell us the truth about. And he really dishes on this. We're going to get a little bit into breast implant illness and and some topics like that. He has a really great balanced um, approach to all these subjects because he'll tell you what the literature says and he'll also tell you when hey we don't have enough research to really come to a conclusion on that and he'll tell you when he doesn't know something he talks about some really interesting stories that might remind you of Grey's Anatomy if you were a Grey's Anatomy junkie like I was for years about what it's like to be a resident and what that does to a doctor and where we got this whole doctor is God complex. He's actually coming out with a book called Playing God, The Evolution of a Modern Surgeon. And the book is funny and it's heartwarming. He actually tells me a story in this episode you're about to hear that uh, that really got me misty-eyed. And it's also a pretty harrowing journey that he goes through to become one of the top plastic surgeons. Uh, in the Eastern United States. He's an assistant professor of surgery as well. So he teaches surgery at Oakland University and William Beaumont School of Medicine. Um, And funny little story before we get started. Uh, Two and a half years ago, the day before my 50th birthday, I was playing tennis and I swung the racket. And this is the most unglamorous sports injury ever. I hit myself in the lip with my tennis racket. And I had about a almost an inch long, very deep gash in my upper lip. Well, your upper lip is not a place that you want a gash, right? But the next day, um, I had big birthday plans. I was having a big birthday party and it was my 50th. And so I'd been looking forward to it. Um, JP Sears was flying in and on my 50th birthday, we, we did a video that you could find on YouTube where he pretends to be, um, a missionary because he was coming to Utah. I had never been to Utah before, but, Um, And he's like riding his bike and he has a missionary name tag on and he comes to my door and he's teaching me the gospel of green smoothies and he comes in and makes a green smoothie in my kitchen and he puts a yoga mat in it and things explode and uh, there's a celebrity guest appearance and 
I never really like push that video, but I should because I think it's super funny and people see it and they think that I'm super boring and there's comments <laughs> on his, uh, you know, JP Sears is a, you know, like a YouTube comedian and he also goes out on, um, on, uh, goes to comedy clubs all over the country and, and does his shtick. But, uh, I think he's funniest on YouTube and, um, some of his videos get millions and millions of views. You've probably seen him. He has like long red hair and he always wears yoga pants and he makes fun of lots of, um, sort of woo woo and earthy, crunchy, holistic, um, health oriented content. Super funny. But anyways, he was coming out the next day and I was super excited about making videos with him. Um, but people thought that I was really boring in the video. And what they don't know is that he and I had scripted, scripted it. We kind of kicked the script back and forth a little bit. I wrote the first script and then he, um, added to it. And then he did some off the cuff stuff. And I was trying so hard not to laugh during the video. Um, and there were a couple of times I just couldn't help it, but I was trying very hard to be deadpan and not laugh, but people took it as she's boring. I was actually just trying to pay it, play a part and I'm not used to doing comedy. But um, because I had all that going on on the next day, and it was also my son's baseball banquet for his uh, junior year, I didn't want to miss that. I didn't want to go in and get stitched up. And in fact, I actually presented at Instacare and they said, we can't stitch that. Well, I didn't even know Tony Yoon, but he was in a community of um, like physicians and influencers, health and wellness people that I was in. And I had posted this picture of my lip and I was like, hey, you guys, what do I do? And he said, I will fly to Utah and do it for you for free. Um, you want to just get my my plane ticket, put me up in a hotel overnight if you want. I will do that for free. And here he is, this top-rated plastic surgeon. I thought that was so sweet. And it really sets you up for the kind of person we're about to talk to because he's really quite amazing and, and uh, open and honest. Um, but I did not actually do it. I did not take him up on that. And I think my lip looks fine. There was definitely a pretty hardcore scar there for a year or so. Now it's faded. I'm glad I didn't get stitched up because the next day I just really wanted to have fun. I didn't want to be in pain and on lidocaine and looking weird. It was also a vanity thing. I didn't want to look weird on my video with JP, but that's another reason why I looked boring is that laughing or smiling really hurt with that scab on my lip. And so I look super weird in that video with JP, but I didn't want to look even weirder having just barely had plastic surgery. So that's my little lead up story. With that, I want to introduce you to my friend, Tony Yoon. So welcome to the Vibe Show, Dr. Tony Yoon. Thanks so much for having me, Robin. So I'm, I'm really excited about today because we're going to ask you so many hard questions that nobody ever gets to ask a plastic surgeon. No one would dare. But um, I'm just going to, I'm going to start right out with it. I'm going to come right out with it, Tony, because you hang, you hang out with all of us influencers and authors and people in the holistic space, people who are very frankly, pretty critical of Western medicine. And you're, you're almost the only one who like dares to walk into our, you know, like circles and, and uh, professional conferences and Facebook groups, and, and you've done it. You've walked right in. You've been very well received. P.S. Christy Funk, MD from Beverly Hills, was mm -hmm. at Ocean Robbins retreat last week, and we hung out a ton. Mm -hmm. Do you know her? I know of her. I have not met her before. She was um, uh, the breast surgeon. Wasn't she Angelina Jolie's doctor? Yep. Yep. She probably, I'm going to have her on my show to talk about breast health soon. Um, and she has some really cool content to talk about. 
And I doubt that if I asked her that, that she would say that. But from other people, I know. Okay, I, I, I just know that. Yep, she was. And, and, and I think there are people who are ready to pick up a big rock and throw it at her because, you know, it was a, what do you guys call it? I call it preemptive mastectomies because she mm-hmm. was BRCA, BRCA positive. Yep, yeah. Um, but, but I'm, you know, I'll, I'll ask her about that. Um, and I'll see if I can find a nice way to ask her about that. But anyways, besides the two of you, I don't know anybody else who does plastic surgery all day who is also super interested in holistic conversations and interventions and nutritional and functional medicine. So tell me, how do those two coexist for you? And how did you become so holistic leaning, even though you went for plastics as your specialty? Yeah, I think that this is something that came a little later on in my career. Um, I mean, one of the things you know, as surgeons, I, I went through three years of general surgery residency after four years of medical school. I did three years of general surgery residency, two years of plastic surgery residency. I worked at a year fellowship out in Beverly Hills with the top Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. And during that entire time, I was really in, in what was tra- traditionally traditional Western medicine. And, uh, and a lot of that is kind of built off this old school mentality um, of old school surgeons where when you go through your training, you beat down the younger residents uh, to a pulp, basically, because you uh, make them work on godly hours. You treat them like they're indentured servants. We used to call them scut monkeys, and you can, you can kind of guess why. I mean, it's a terrible derogatory term. And so then what happens with these doctors is that they become so beat down that they become bitter. And this is the beginning of this kind of God complex that, that a lot of surgeons develop. And, and that was kind of the, the name of my uh, new book, Playing God. Um, and it's this idea that you are, as an old-fashioned doctor, old-fashioned especially surgeon, uh, you, it's a patriarchal system where you're the leader, you're lording over everybody else. And there's, there's this saying that we used to always say, to cut is to cure. So in surgery, that's the idea, to cut is to cure. And that's what I was all raised in. Well, so I went into practice um, and I did very well because I'm a pretty uh, meticulous type of a guy, as you probably know by now, Robin. You better be with what you do for a living. You better be. <laughs> <laughs> so I hit the, this pinnacle of practice where I was busier than I think you know, probably anybody in town. I had this long waiting list. And I had this patient who came in for a facelift. And it was should have been very routine. She said, hey, look, I'm in my early 60s and all my friends have had work done. I haven't. And I feel like when I sit around them, all the guys look at them, but nobody ever looks at me. And, and they've all had work done and I haven't, so I think it's time. So I look at her and she looked like a reasonable candidate. I said, you know, that's fine, let's do this. So I bring her to surgery and I do a facelift on her. The surgery takes about three, three and a half hours. She spends the night in the hospital. Uh, everything goes well. Um, and uh, as I'm actually leaving the hospital after her surgery, this is a couple hours later, uh, I'm about 10 minutes out of the hospital and I get a page on my pager and it, the page is from the nurse taking care of her and it's a 911 page. And that's as bad as you would expect a 911. It's an emergency. So I call the nurse back immediately from my car and she says, your patient is bleeding and you need to get back now. So I flip my car around and I press down on the accelerator and I'm weaving through traffic, hoping that a cop would, would see me speeding and maybe try to pull me over and at the same time pull everybody else over so I can get a clear lane to the hospital. I get to the hospital, I run up the stairs, enter her room, and I don't see my patient. I see somebody who resembles Jabba the Hutt. Her neck is so filled up with blood 
um, that my worry, which is the big worry that you have when this happens, is that, is that it's going to basically suffocate her. So I throw a couple of gloves on, not even sterile. I take a pair of scissors and I cut all of her sutures out. And in front of her husband, the staff, the nurses, I, take, I stick my hand into her neck and I'm grabbing globs of blood out of her neck. Um, and then I bring her to the operating room. And sh the great thing about it is that she did great. You know, six weeks after surgery, she looked perfect. She's hanging out with her friends. She's so happy. But it really got me into thinking that here I am at the top of my career and, and, and you know, I'm still following that whole belief to cut is to cure. Well, to cut is also potentially to create a major problem. And if you have a problem in surgery, that problem's, you know, the worst obviously is somebody can die. And so it really got me into really rethinking, how, why am I doing this? How am I doing this? And is there a better way? And that's what I've gone to. And that's this whole idea of holistic plastic surgery, looking at a patient as a full person, um, not as a procedure that I can perform and looking at their whole, you know, everything from skincare to what they eat, to their environmental exposures, to non-invasive and minimally invasive options, and really using surgery as a last resort. Well, that is beautiful, but how do you get paid teaching them about prevention and less invasive um, options? You know, because, you know, since you've written this book called Playing God, let's just go there too. Uh, we We kind of have this sense that when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so when somebody comes in the door, you're going to sell them plastic surgery. Are you actually telling people they shouldn't get the surgery in some cases? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I have been inspired by people like you, where I can in my practice see 30 people in a day and I may change 30 lives in a day that way. But via my podcast, via my email newsletters, via YouTube and Instagram, I can reach thousands of people a day and help them. So that's really what has been a huge change in focus. I still operate a lot, Robin. I mean, I operate two and a half days a week. Um, I do a lot of facelifts. I do a lot of other types of operations. Um, but it is always the last resort. And I turn a lot of people down. Um, I try to educate them on other ways that they can achieve what they're looking for without going under the knife. And sometimes you just, there's nothing else you can do. You know, if you've had four kids, you've got skin hanging from your tummy and you just, you know, you don't feel like you, you don't feel comfortable going to the gym because all that extra skin is in the way, then yeah, the only option you have is surgery. So I'm, you know, I'm not beating around the bush that way, but at the same time, always looking at other options uh, if there are any. Yeah, and I think we should point out that beating up plastic surgeons is a terrible idea because if we are unhappy with the idea that um, women feel they have to slice up their faces or slice up their breasts to be acceptable in society, to be desirable to men, to have status among women, you didn't create that situation. You just meet the need. And I'm sure most women who come to you know exactly what they want, and they just want a really good surgeon who uh, is... Uh, well-rated and patients find him approachable, which you are a side note. I should tell everyone the story of how you had sent me your first book. Was it your first book? What book did you... Oh, that was my second one. So the second one was The Age Fix. My first one was In Stitches, which was a memoir that is the precursor to my 
latest one. So I've, I've written three, I've published three books. Yeah, and you're actually pretty young. Like, I think it's amazing that you've written three books while also, you know, you know, and you're a dad, your husband and dad and a, a man of faith. And I love, I love watching you and I'm fascinated by your life. And I'm fascinated, like I said, by the fact that you'll walk into um, this community mm-hmm. of people who are historically pretty critical of your profession. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think that we need to hate on the plastic surgeons because the, the need for them is huge need being it's been created by our society. Um, you know, like someone like me who breastfeeds four babies, some of them for almost two years, you know, what you end up looking like at the end of that isn't acceptable to society. It's not, nobody should throw a rock at the woman or a rock at the surgeon. It's the culture that created this. But I love listening to you on other podcasts. And I love when I have a conversation with you personally. Um, I love how you don't just tell a story that's slanted to favor your profession, like breast implants don't make you sick and and the like. And don't worry, everybody, we'll get to that. But I, I hope that you could tell me a story from your book, Playing God, this new one coming out that reveals uh, the real truth about plastic surgery. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you asking. So just like you said, I mean, I think that there is a lot more to plastic surgery and the practice of it than meets the eye. I mean, there there are those people, yes, who are on either side. There are people who are so anti-plastic surgery that they feel that anybody who has it done is, you know, being not truthful to themselves. The other side of people who are so um, plastic surgery um, addicted and crazy that they love plastic surgery that that they recommend it for everybody and it isn't for everybody. So just you know, to give an example of kind of what really, I think the truth of plastic surgery, and honestly, I think the truth of medicine is, is you know, I, I was early in my practice and I had this patient who came to, to see me, I was referred for actually. And this was a woman who had open heart surgery. And during open heart surgery, you basically cut the sternum, the breastbone in half so that the surgeon can get at the heart. So she had this surgery, um, and the, the actual heart part of it went well, but her sternum, her breastbone got infected. And so they called me in as a plastic surgeon to help reconstruct it. So a lot of people forget that there is reconstruction in plastic surgery too. So I performed this operation and for the first six weeks, she does really well. And I'm seeing her every day in the hospital for six weeks. And I literally missed one day of rounding on her because I was working really late. And I said, you know, I'll just see her tomorrow. And when I go to check her on her, the, on her the next day, she's not in her room. And I think, huh, did she go home? And I look on the computer and it says that she's been transferred to the ICU. So I run over to the ICU and um, she is intubated on a ventilator. And I think, oh my gosh, what happened? And I look down at her chest and her chest looks fine. Everything had healed fine, but she had had a massive heart attack. And um, I talked to the family. The family said that uh, she had this huge heart attack and that everybody says she's going to die and, uh, and that, there, that there's nothing that they can do. So I basically stood over this patient who I'd spent six plus weeks taking care of, my patient. And as a doctor, honestly, I felt really helpless. So the only thing I thought, you know, the only thing that came to mind is uh, holding her hand and, and praying for her. And so I held her hand, I said a few prayers, and I just kind of sat there for a few minutes holding her hand, and then I left. And for the next two weeks, uh, I came in every day. And as a surgeon, it's weird because as a surgeon, I'm used to doing something, you know, and, 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 and intervening and taking care of things and, 
taking on, you know, taking things into my own hands. And this was one of the only times that I, in my practice ever, where I couldn't do anything. So I would go in and hold her hand every day for a few minutes and just kind of sit there and be with her. Well, two weeks into it, I show up one day and every day that I'm there, they're telling me, you know, she's going to die any, any day now, you know, it's over. I walk in her room and holy crap, Robin, she is sitting up in bed, breathing on her own with a big smile on her face. <sighs> and I go to her, I go, oh my gosh, look at you. And I said, you're going to live. And she said, you know what, Dr. Yoon? She said, I knew. And I go, well, you knew what? And she goes, I knew that every day you came in to see me and you held my hand every day. And I said, you did? And she goes, I did. And she goes, and I look forward to that every single day. And she said three words after that, that I remember to this day. She said, you saved me. And, uh, and at the time, Robin, I had hit rock bottom in my practice. Uh, I was an early, uh, it was early in practice. I'd had a couple of patients that really threw me for a loop. Um, and, um, and I would actually was considering quitting medicine altogether. And, uh, and I told her that she, she saved me too, because this event in and of itself brought me back to the reality of what real medicine and even real plastic surgery is, is sometimes it's more important to look at the big picture and the holistic perspective of a patient, you know, and the successes that you can have that way versus just looking at the actual surgery and the procedure. So, so that was a huge point in my life. Um, that I think also has set me on, on the course of where I have gone today. That was so beautiful. I actually got misty-eyed um, hearing that story because I feel like what you're saying is that you came to the conclusion that it wasn't just this surgery that she needed that that helped her, was that your skills could help her. It was also just your love and care and compassion. Is that did you Does that make you feel like you have more to offer as a surgeon? Yeah, and I think that's the difference between, I think, you know, in, in this kind of old school surgeon mentality and the modern surgeon, the, the, you know, and I'm not going to say I'm, you know, I'm the only one or anything like that. There's so many of us now uh, in this generation where we've been trained differently, we've reacted to training differently, and, um, and we're not the same doctors, the old school surgeons, you know, that treated the nurses and the support staff poorly, that thought that they were gods. It's different, you know, and, and that's, what I'm trying to help bring out there to, to, for people to understand that there are these modern surgeons, you know, like myself, where, you know, we, we look at a patient's holistic well-being as the overall goal. You know, we're not this patriarchal ruler. We're, we're part of the overall healthcare team. We use surgery as a last resort. And possibly the most important part of it is that we don't think we're God. We're not playing God, but we acknowledge that there's spirituality and belief and that that can play a very integral part in a person's health and wellness. Yeah, you know, I feel like something has happened in the last 10 years. And my guess is that it has something to do with the fact that it's somewhere between two thirds and three fourths of Americans in the last year have used some kind of holistic intervention, you know, outside the, you know, drugs and surgery approach. And so maybe standard of care doctors can't be arrogant and narcissistic and condescending. Um, anyone hearing this should know that Tony couldn't be less like that. Just, just doesn't have the personality, doesn't have that attitude. But I, I wonder too, if our doctors are just getting, like you said, beat down, beat down from medical school on and criticized, you know, like these big 
rise, you know, as we sort of rise up and say, we want more from medicine. We want different from medicine. We don't want the monopoly or the arrogance anymore. Do you, do you see a shift in your 20 years of practicing medicine in how do. doctors I are? I do. And, and I think that it's, it's, it's looking at things in two ways, you know, and I think it's very simple. It's like, you know, it, when you're, when you grow up and you're, you grow up as a kid and you're treated a certain way by your parents. And if you have a parent who makes mistakes and, and all parents do, you can do two things from it. And, and it, and it really depends on the person. You can learn from your parents' mistakes and vow not to make those mistakes as a parent yourself. And that's something that I have very consciously tried to do um, with my kids. Or you could do the opposite. And what a lot of surgeons do is you can say, well, this is how I was treated. I was beat down as a kid, so I'm gonna beat my kid down. And that's how surgeons have been traditionally, is that I've been beat down as an intern, as a resident. So when I get there, I'm gonna beat them down too, because that's just the way things are. And I think that there's a difference between this old fashioned surgeon and the more enlightened doctor who says, you know, I've been through this. And that's part of my book is like going through being trained by these old school doctors who are trying to beat you down, who are trying to make you this kind of, the, you know, beat you down and make you in their bitter, arrogant image. But how do you overcome that and say, you know what, that's not me. I actually went into my residency with the knowledge that I'm kind of a weak guy. Like I'm not a strong person. I don't look at myself as a strong person. And I uh, am not going to go somewhere that's going to create that, you know, make me that type of a bitter, angry, terrible person. Um, but I went in specifically saying, I cannot, I'm not going to allow myself to change that way. But not everybody goes through that. You know, there are other people that don't quite have that. And, and if anything, once again, they enter that old school idea of, hey, you know, I was treated this way. So now I'm going to treat them that way. Yeah, it almost reminds me of like fraternities and you know, there's been a lot of legislation and a lot of attention to kids who get killed by hazing incidents or, you know, I don't know what that's called. My son is going into his second year in a fraternity. And when I found out last year that he was going to pledge a fraternity, I was like, no, please, no, they, they get ridiculously drunk every weekend. And, you know, they're mean to each other. And it's like, you're either being bullied, or you then when you get past whatever milestone it is, then you're the bully, like, sounds like a horrible culture. And, and it sounds like, uh, hospitals and um, just the way doctors are trained up is kind of like that. And probably because it's like, you know what, you are going to be the most well-regarded, the most educated, the, the highest status among us. Let's put you through boot camp, just kind of a military metaphor too, to see if you can handle it. And so there's there's probably some of that too. I know Christy Funk told me this last week that because she was telling me how she was like this art student and you know they had no plans to be a doctor graduating college and then you know god told her you're gonna be a doctor and she's like what and um but then she just went into residency knowing like i will not have any life for five years i will not have any sleep for five years and that's how she survived it is just expecting if you ever get to go outside and see you know blue sky and sunshine just consider it a gift because she just kind of like went into it knowing that's the culture of it Sounds terrible, honestly, but I feel like you probably know some good stuff. Like, let us in on it. You've worked in hospitals and ICUs and the operating room for 20 years. Um, tell us something that most people don't know about surgeons and plastic surgery, even if they've watched all 13 seasons of Grey's Anatomy like I have. Okay, here, here's a tip. July is not the time to go into a university hospital. Oh. And I'll tell you a little story why. So basically... Every July, July 1st is the first day that the new residents um, 
come in or as the day that you move up. So the first year of residency is called your internship. You're brand new. You're out, just got, got out of medical school and you don't know Jack. You don't know anything, but you're an intern and you're a doctor, quote unquote doctor. Um, that's July 1st is when they show up. And there are actually studies that do show that in university hospitals, the chances of, of you being injured by a medical error is higher in July than in any, any other month of the year. And I give a story in my book um, that kind of illustrates this. I was actually a second year resident. It was my first day as a second year. So when I was an intern, my first year, basically you just do what everybody tells you to do. And they don't, and at the hospital I was at, they didn't rely on you to necessarily save anybody's life or anything. You just did paperwork. You did the small operations and you just kind of followed the people around and, and, and were their indentured servants. But second year residency is a whole different story. And after five o'clock, all the residents, other residents leave and the ones who are on call that night are there to basically put out fires. And what we mean by that is if something bad happens, you're there to put that out and take care of things. So it was my first day, it was July 1st, my first day as a second year resident. And I had been so busy in a Jimmy Buffett cover band that I, I did not take the time to review all of my life-saving, advanced life-saving stuff. I was on call with an intern and we were just walking down the hall and this nurse grabs me and she says, Dr. Yoon, call a code, Dr. Yoon, come on in, I need your help. So I'm, I, I look to my left, look to my right, I'm like, holy crap, she's talking to me. <laughs> and I go into the room and here's this woman lying on the bed. She's probably in her 60s or 70s and she's not breathing. And she said, you know, call a code. Uh, my patient's not breathing. Can you, you know, I need you to run this code. My mind goes blank because I literally had not taken the time to review any of this stuff. And it was my first day in, in, in July. And so I look at the guy, my intern, who just had moved from Pakistan and basically spoke no English. And he mouths to me, no English. And he basically, uh, basically uh, tells me using hand gestures that he doesn't know what to do either. So I'm thinking like, what do I do? I'm like, okay, I start picturing Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> say Grey's Anatomy here. And I say, you know, get the crash cart. So the nurses hook the patient up. We look at the, the heart monitor and um, my intern and I look at it and we both, we could actually, we are smart enough to know this, that she was in ventricular fibril fibrillation, which is basically the heart rhythm that immediately precedes death. And so if I don't do something soon, she is going to basically die. So I know from enough that I know I have to basically defibrillate her or shock her heart to bring her heart back to life. So I, like Dr. McDreamy on Grey's Anatomy, I yell, get me the paddles. They put the paddles in my hand. I set the paddles down on her chest and I yell clear like I'm on TV. And the nurse yells, stop. And right before I press the buttons to defibrillate her, to basically shock her, the nurse grabs my hands moves my hands into a different position on the patient, steps away and says, okay, go ahead. So I press the buttons, the patient's heart gets shocked and we stare at the monitor for a few seconds and she's back into normal sinus rhythm. Basically we saved her. But it was not because of me, it was because of this awesome nurse who realized that the way that I had the paddles put on her chest, I probably would have shocked her liver, not her heart. And thank God that this patient ended up doing just fine. She survived, not because of me. So I left that, I left that event, went straight to my call room and reviewed my ACLS, my advanced life-saving, basically up until dawn. And I never was caught in that situation again. But I tell you this story because yes, it is true that July is the month 
that has the highest risk of, of potential medical errors if you're in a university hospital. If you're not, then there's no residence and you don't have to worry about it. But, but that's something definitely to, to know about. Okay, first of all, best tip ever. Don't get surgery at a university hospital in July. I mean, how interesting that it's like documented that there are more errors in July. And thank you for telling us that because I'm sure that that's a secret that the whole plastic surgery industry and surgery industry in general would love to sweep under the rug. But also, honestly, that story you just told is the most humble thing that I have ever heard a doctor say. And I am positive that in 20 years of practice, that every single surgeon has almost made a huge mistake like that or been tired and has been up all night, those poor residents, um, but also people who work on call and people who work shift work. Um, you know, one of, two, two ER surgeons came to my uh, Swiss liver detox retreat this last year, and we were talking about that. And one of them only works like all night, like 12s and 16s or something like that. And so my point is like, first of all, thank you for telling us such a humble story. My point is, it reminds me of my experience with attorneys, you know, going through an, a horrible struggle um, is trying to get my kid's father to pay child support and many, many other issues over the course of 10 years of raising four minors, um, pretty much by myself, I learned that attorneys are human beings. And you don't just walk into court and hope that your attorney is going to represent you well, because she might stand up there and be like flipping through her notes and super embarrassed because she can't remember your case from somebody else's or she'll t say something wrong. And I've gone to court with several friends who are going through a divorce. And now if I counsel somebody who's going through a divorce, I say, you sit down with your attorney for one hour, pay her, pay her, it's worth it. Before you walk into court and you remind her of every single detail of your case, you want it front of mind for her because guess what? She walks into court, she might, and I've seen this happen by a very good attorney, my attorney actually, but representing a friend, walk into the courtroom uh, after a sleepless night with personal issues right out of another courtroom situation and didn't bone up on your case and has no strategy because she thought she was going to settle and then you don't settle with your ex in the hallway before and she is standing up there with her pants down. And so my my point in telling that lawyer story is that it's it's the same thing. If you're listening to this, doctors are people. They might have had a long night. They might be in residency and just overworked. They might be depressed. They might be whatever. And I don't think we, I think, you know, maybe you could give us some pointers about how can you, because my pointer would be like, go in and meet with your doctor and ask really good questions. Be that educated patient, be the patient that they know they're not going to get away with any shit. Am I wrong? What What other tips you got? Yeah. I mean, because really taking the time and asking those questions. I mean, in my field in plastic surgery, it's super important because it really has become in some practices, a it's like a fast food. It's like an assembly line where doctors, it's like, oh, you want breast implants? All right, go ahead, sign up over here. And, and they just go and do it. And I've heard stories of, and have seen patients where they've had the wrong size implants put in, where I've heard of practices where the implant is put in um, back to front, but the doctor doesn't care. So they just close the patient up and let them go. Uh, I see, I've heard of stories of, and seen stories of patients with breast implants in the armpits that are stuck there because it's an ER doctor that put the implant in, not a real plastic surgeon. So you really have to, especially in today's wild west of medicine, you've got to do your homework. You've got to talk with your doctor. You've got to make sure that that doctor, especially if you're going under the knife, 
takes the time to know you and know your case. Because I mean, there's some doctors who are doing 10, 12 operations in a day. How do they keep track of all these patients? That, you know, how do they keep track of, you know, of your specific individual differences between you and the next person? It's really important to make sure that you feel comfortable that that doctor is doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Great tip. Um, once I had a surgery when I was younger and I was supposed to be at 9am and I couldn't eat till the day before, you know, from the day before. And I was supposed to, so I was there at nine in the surgical center and I sat there with my surgeon was in the lobby talking to his accountant right in front of me till 2pm. He literally talked to his accountant about all his financial problems till 2pm. I was supposed to be the first surgery of the day. Cause that's another thing. I think everybody should try to be the first surgery of the day. Cause I'll tell you what, when I was a piano teacher and I taught eight students or 10 students in a row, the last student didn't get as good a lesson as the first one did. And so I kind of just innately knew that. So I was there at 9am, but then he ended up not taking me till 2pm. And I think he was in a hurry and I got the wrong surgery. Oh God! I got the wrong surgery. And then another one where I was at an emergency ectopic pregnancy out of state, didn't even know I was pregnant. My ovary blew up, da, 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 middle of the night. Some guy comes in. I'll tell you what, my uh, scar from that is some crazy looking scar. I'm like, was the guy drunk? Like it's not a straight line at all. And it doesn't really matter. It's really low, but I just, I look at it and I'm like, I think they were kind of trying to save my life. And so I'm not mad about it, but I, you know, just doctors are humans. Try to avoid the OR, try to avoid the whole medical system if you can. I totally agree. Good. And that's why, that's why you're allowed in the holistic communities. <laughs> <laughs> so since we agree on that, let's talk about, you're going to give us the inside scoop, everyone. We're going to, we're going to task Dr. Yoon with just going through like two minutes at a time, telling us his download and maybe we'll go a little sideways and ask some clarifying questions, but he has a holistic beauty blacklist that he and I talked about. And I'm super excited to have him talk to you about these, about breast implants and the connection between a certain kind of lymphoma, Brazilian butt lifts, um, injectable fillers, and the risks of that, um, breast implant illness, um, people who do plastic surgery but aren't real plastic surgeons, and we're going to talk about thread lifts. So stay tuned if you're into any of that. Here we go. Um, let's start with breast implants and ALCL, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, this kind of cancer. Is this, this is pretty new that there's a real link there? Talk, talk us through that. So this has been going on for the last few years. And um, interestingly, the media hasn't, you know, it's reported on it, but it hasn't really um, broken really big. I, my guess is a lot of patients still have not heard of this. And what this is, is that we started uh, um, discovering that there's a very rare type of cancer called anaplastic large cell lymphoma, a cancer of the scar tissue surrounding certain types of breast implants. Um, so whenever you put a breast implant in or really any type of a foreign body implant into the body, uh, the body will create scar tissue circumferentially around it. And that's in everybody. Um, we used to think that the worst thing that can happen if you have breast implants, you get that scar tissue can get thick and it can make your breasts feel hard and can even get calcified and, and that stinks but it's not gonna necessarily uh, end your life. But what we started finding over the last few years is that there's this rare type of lymphoma of that scar tissue that can develop with textured breast implants. And what those are basically is implants can either come in a smooth shell or a shell that's textured, it feels kind of like sandpaper. Um, if you've ever heard the term gummy bear implants, these are typically the gummy bear implants. And 
it's interesting because it we know that every single and right now there's been over 500 confirmed cases in the United States out of millions of women with breast implants over 500 confirmed cases and every single one that is confirmed has some connection with a textured breast implant we know of no single not even one confirmed case of a patient having a smooth implant and developing this cancer well this cancer has resulted in the deaths of i think around a dozen people maybe um, so it's not, you know, like pancreatic cancer where pretty much everybody who gets it is going to die, unfortunately, um, but it is something that people have died from. And so uh, recently the FDA has actually issued a recall and Allergan, one of the big implant makers in the, in the United States, has recalled a certain type of texture breast implant. But that's only one type. And there are many other types that are still available in the United States that plastic surgeons are still putting in to patients today and the argument of those plastic surgeons that they use in using them is that they feel they can get a better cosmetic result and that the risks of this ALCL and the patient dying it's worth it um, because they get a better cosmetic result and it, it I, I'm dumbfounded by it honestly so that's something that's really important for women to know of if you're not sure if you have a texture breast implant definitely something um, to to know about and to contact your old plastic surgeon, your previous plastic surgeon, or look at your paperwork uh, so that you know whether you may be at risk of this rare type of cancer. Super dumb question. Why would a breast implant have texture of sandpaper? Why, would, why is that a good thing? Yeah, because they're made basically to stick to the surrounding tissues. And so, for example, in a lot of women who've had breast cancer, the breast tissue is removed, they undergo a mastectomy. And so because the breast tissue is removed, there's nothing there to hold the implant up. If you put a, a, a smooth implant into a breast like that, it can drop very, very quickly. So the idea behind this textured shell is that it allows the implant, especially if the implant is shaped like a teardrop, it allows it to hopefully stick in place so that let's say it doesn't fall or so that it doesn't, let's say, go upside down and you have a teardrop shaped implant that's now sitting the opposite way. Okay, so I want to say 25 years ago, silicone implants were banned. 1992. Okay, 1992. Let's see, how far off was I? 0212. Oh, 27 years. Okay, so it was banned. It was, they were off the market for a long time, but now they're back. They've been back for a good long while. Why did, like, I think Congress, oh, 06. Yeah, you know your stuff. Weren't there like congressional hearings and stuff? Why would they ban it from all these health problems? Kind of a similar sort of political situation? Yeah, so there's a, so ALCL, which is this cancer, we, you know, we just talked about is separate from, I think what you're looking at, which is breast implant illness. So breast implant illness is completely separate. Some people get it, uh, do get it mixed up, but they're two very separate things. So textured surface breast implants are the risk of ALCL, whether they're saline or silicone. Breast implant illness is why the implants were taken off the market for that period of time. And this is a um, plethora basically of potential issues that some women get from their breast implants, whether it's fatigue, rashes, muscle aches, hair loss. I know you covered that in a recent podcast. Um, the reason why they were taken off the market was because people were worried about it. And so the FDA did look and there were studies that were performed uh, and the studies did not at that time appear to show a connection between breast implants and these types of symptoms. And so they were put back on the market. Okay. So basically there's this very specific kind of cancer related to a specific kind of implant. And then there's the, you know, it's, you know, more and more information coming out about it over the last 30 or 40 years since since people started having implants for 10 years or so to even document it. 
it's kind of like this whole gamut of um, illness that people blame on breast implants and probably some a lot of that is legitimate I think is what you're saying but I think I think your stance is also um, correct me if I'm wrong if you have breast implants and you're healthy don't do this big invasive thing to have them out necessarily because that's got risks of its own right yeah so there's a couple of issues here um you know when you look at breast implants the satisfaction rate of breast implants is upwards of 97 percent wow yeah i mean it's it's one of the highest satisfaction rates in all of plastic surgery that being said and and really it is a bit of a sacred cow in plastic surgery and there are doctors i know of plastic surgeons i know of who the thought of of breast implants making us sick they scoff at that they go well we took care of that years ago that's not true in fact, I had a patient of mine who I did a breast augmentation on like 12 years ago who saw, who was having some issues herself of some rashes, some muscle aches, and she saw a old school surgeon down the street, actually um, about 10 minute drive from my office um, because her husband was seeing this doctor. And she, she told the doctor, hey, I've been, you know, I had this breast augmentation. I think she had saline implants too because they were done quite a while ago. And she said that I'm having these symptoms and stuff. What do you think I should do? And he said, you need to see a psychiatrist. So she came to see me a few months later and I was, I mean, shocked that this idiot would say this to her. But that unfortunately has been the dogma in this old fashioned plastic surgery group, you know, the kind of old school docs is that, oh, you have issues from your breast implants. Your issues are psychological. It's in your head. You need to see a psychiatrist. Well, there are some studies that are coming out, and granted, they're smaller studies. They are being performed in the rheumatologic literature. They are being um, published, peer-reviewed scientific journals, showing that there may be a connection between breast implants and certain autoimmune diseases like scleroderma, um, like Sjogren's syndrome, and, and others. Um, and more and more, thousands and thousands of women are coming forward and saying, I think that I've got these symptoms due to my breast implants. And I'll tell you, Robin, I've had a handful of my patients who have had symptoms like that, and it appears to two things, you know, can happen. And this appears to be consistent with the studies that we're seeing in the literature, is that if you're a female, you've got breast implants for the last several years, and you're starting to develop these symptoms, but you don't have full-blown autoimmune, you haven't been diagnosed with um, rheumatoid arthritis or Sjogren's or something, and you take your implants out, then there may be about a 50 to 70% chance that your symptoms will improve. If however, and I've seen this in my patients as well, you've had 20 years of, of terrible autoimmune disease, uh, you've been on multiple medications and this and that, and you've had implants all this time, the, the chances of your symptoms improving when those implants are removed are fairly small. And I've seen that in my practice as well, is that when I get those patients who've got terrible autoimmune disease, they go, look, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know what else could be causing this. Let's take my implants out happily, you know, I'm happy to do that. You know, if you want me to take your implants out, no question, that's what we do. Unfortunately, they don't seem to get much better. And what it really comes down to, Robin, is that we need more research. You know, that we need more research to determine what percentage of women are at risk, who's at risk, and, you know, and, and what are the options that we can do to, to help these patients to, to get better. And then obviously, the final question is, should we keep doing this operation? You know, and that's something that unfortunately a lot of plastic surgeons, it's not even on their radar of not doing the surgery. Well, and the surgeons and like I said before, the women. I mean, I, I had a OBGYN friend told me, and maybe you corrected this and said, no, it's lower. But OBGYN friend told me that it's one in three women. Maybe it's one in three women in Utah. And I wouldn't be surprised about that at all. This is a 
uh, is an interesting state with its own flavor on many things. But one in three women have breast implants. Is that just like way off? I don't think really that many. However, there was a survey several years ago that named Salt Lake City the top city for plastic surgery in the United States. Stop. You know, as I'm telling you, like, I didn't want to say anything rude because I do live here. I do love this place. All my all my family and friends live here. But um, it's so interesting because it's it's a pretty holistic leaning culture here. Um, but nothing healthy ever flies here. All those businesses just go out of business and there's no, there's very little interest in environmental stuff and they love them. Some Utahns love them, some plastic surgery and number one for consumption of depression medications, SSRIs too, uh, nationwide. But, uh, my, my ex-husband's second ex-wife, everybody got that? My ex-husband's second (laughs) ex-wife. Okay. <laughs> is a is a plastic surgery addict. I'm going a little sideways here, but um, she had I didn't even know some of these these things could happen with with surgery. Like you know, of course I learned these things after she was his next ex wife. Um, you know the kids talk or whatever. But uh, she actually had the equivalent of a tummy tuck on her arms. Never knew there was such a thing. Like she literally had surgery. She had scars on the underside of her arms and she had a tummy tuck or multiple tummy tucks to the point she did not have a belly button. Do you, do you have these, um, surgery seekers who are addicted and like every year they like plan their two surgeries or like, do you say no to them? Oh God. Yeah. You know, I had a patient who came to see me, um, and she, I mean, anybody would look at her and go, oh my God, this woman's addicted to plastic surgery. And she kept making appointments to see me. And every time she would come in, I would, I would say, I'm not going to do anything for you, but let's talk about reversing what you've had done. So then she was not, and we need to say, this is what we should do, blah, blah, blah. Then she's like, okay, thanks. She'll leave. And then a year later, she called one another consultation. So it got to the point where she would come in many, many years in a row. And we'd always book her at the end of the day because I don't want any of my patients thinking that I'm the one operating on her. <laughs> <laughs> So I see that all the time. And unfortunately, there is this plastic surgery addiction. There's biodysmorphia. Um, I talk a lot about that in my um, new book, Playing God, of, of just how do you deal with patients? I had one patient with biodysmorphia who I operated on mistakenly, not knowing she had BDD. And she ended up threatening to hit me with her car. She tried to extort me for all of my money. And at one point, she was screaming that she was going to destroy me if I didn't operate on her again. Uh, or pay her all this money uh, and make it so the only people who would op- who would allow me to operate on them are the whores. And she's running through my office screaming, the whores, the whores, the whores. There's some crazy stuff that happens. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine body dysmorphia, you know, is a, is a pretty extreme uh, mental health disorder. And it probably, yeah, I bet a lot of those people are also bipolar. I mean, that just that's just almost go together. It's estimated that 1% of the population have BDD, biosmorphia, and 10% of plastic surgery patients have BDD. And if you look at specific operations like a nose job, you're probably looking at closer to 30%, maybe even more. Yeah, I should have said um, borderline, actually more borderline than bipolar, but both. Yeah, borderline. Um, Pro tip, everyone, do not threaten uh, the person that you're going, that is going to be operating on you. Treat, treat them well. Bring them cookies. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, okay. Got to talk injectable fillers because I know this is like super, super hot, and, but I'm going to completely reveal my ignorance here. Um, I, had, I had someone come to my Swiss retreat two years ago who, who had to get on the plane two days late because she was having a massive reaction to, I think it was Botox, but okay, so here's my ignorance. 
when you say injectable fillers, because they're on your list of your holistic beauty blacklist, and I'm sure you'll fill us in. Are we talking about Botox? Are we talking about the, the stuff that you inject in your lips? Are we injecting the forehead or injecting the lips? What, what are all those? So Botox is a neurotoxin and that's not a filler. Okay. Uh, Botox is a neurotoxin. It causes muscles to weaken. And so those muscles that create wrinkles typically have the upper face, like the forehead lines, a crow's feet, frown lines, those are usually treated by Botox. Do you think that's safe at this point? Let's go sideways on that for a second. It's not on your list. Yeah. So Botox is the most um, popular cosmetic procedure, probably in the history of the world. Um, I tell you, Robin, in my practice, we probably treat at least 10 patients with Botox every day for the last 15 years. And I've never had a serious complication from it or anywhere close to that. Okay. So this lady and the few, in the few stories I've heard, this lady who came and, and she was, and you know what, maybe it wasn't Botox because I know you're going to talk to us about fillers that can make yeah. you go blind. She couldn't see. So it might've been oh, yeah, something yeah. else. Yeah, that's, that's different. So I, I do want to preface that, however, as saying that there are some people who, who do, there are people online and some people who do feel that they have developed some medical issues from their Botox injections. I, I've never seen it. It's not in our literature or anything like that. So I can't really say what's going on with them. Um, but, you know, like any type of, you know, anything, there are people who are just not going to do well with it. Um, but in general, I say, yes, Botox is safe for the vast majority of the public. And is there any longitudinal research at this point? I mean, people have been doing it for what, at least 15 years. Is there any, I mean, that's, this is my whole issue with it. Like, even like you said, we need more research. And I'm really glad you said that because, you know, like why would the two big industries benefiting from the, the popularity of Botox and breast implants and all that, why would they study it? You know, so we need somebody else to study it. So who? Who's going to study it? Who's going to spend a, you know, a million dollars to track women for 25 years and say, say, you know, because you had lots of Botox for 10 years, you have more of this or this or this health issue. Do you have anything like if you're going to go wrong with Botox and what's the other one? Uh, Juvederm? No. What's the other Botox? Oh, there's, well, there's a number of them. One called Javo, there's Dysport and Xeomin. Okay. So is there a way to go wrong with those? Like keep it under X number of units, I think is how it works. What? Yeah. I mean, there are little things like you can get a droopy eyelid for three or four months from it. Um, you know, that type of stuff, you can look weird from it. Um, but if it's not black market, if it's not injected uh, in with, you know, overly excessive amounts, if you really are following the general guidelines that the vast majority of doctors follow, once again, the serious risks are, are very, very minimal. Fillers are a whole other story though. Okay. And that's where I would really exercise caution. Now, fillers are not on my blacklist. It's the type of filler that's important. And there are fillers that are made of hyaluronic acid. They're typically Restylane and Juvederm. Uh, and those are the ones that we use in my office. And the reason why we use them, one reason why is because they're completely reversible. Because the worst thing that can happen with a filler, and we'll get to this whole blindness thing, is that if you, is a filler basically the way you describe it, it's like liquid skin. Okay, and the earliest filler was collagen and collagen would come in this vial, you would inject it into Barbara Hershey's lips and her lips would look bigger. <laughs> and it lasts about three months and then it goes away. Well, the new fillers are hyaluronic acid and other substances um, and they're used over collagen nowadays because it lasts much longer. The, the danger of filler, however, is when it's accidentally injected into a blood vessel and especially an artery. Well, arteries supply blood to parts of our body, parts of our face. And if you clog an artery, then that part of the body that needs that blood 
can turn black and die. It's like if you take a string and you tie it around your finger really tight and you don't get blood supply to your finger, it's gonna die, turn black and fall off someday. So what can happen with filler is if you accidentally inject filler into a blood vessel and it clogs, clogs that blood vessel up, you can lose parts of your nose, you can lose parts of your lip, and people have even gone blind from it when, when it's injected inappropriately. So it can happen to anybody, that's a risk of it. No, no matter how good your doctor is, no matter what technique, no matter what they're using, it can happen. But your risks are much, much smaller if you do two things. And the first thing, use the right filler, which is a hyaluronic acid filler like wrestling or Juvederm, because you can melt it away if, you're, if there's a problem. And the second thing is use a cannula. A cannula is a blunt needle um, that is made to ideally not uh, puncture a blood vessel. Well, a needle can go right into a blood vessel, but the idea behind these cannulas is that in general they don't. Now, sometimes they still will, but your risk is lower. And those are two huge things that I recommend if you're gonna consider filler, make sure it's a hyaluronic acid one and make sure that the doctor, if possible, is using a cannula because that's gonna make it much safer for you. Okay, when I was at the spa, a lady there told me hyaluronic acid is what Restylane and Juvederm are. And she was like, it's just sugars. And I was like, oh, I bet that there's more than that in there. And so are there heavy metals in there? Do you know? I don't know specifically. Okay. I can't get anybody to tell me that. And I couldn't couldn't learn it on the internet. And so... Hey, I don't know that that's information that we would even be privy to, honestly. Like we understand in general what it is. And hyaluronic acid is a naturally occurring substance in the skin and the body completely breaks it down. But yeah, is there a chance that there's anything else in there that we don't, we're not privy to as physicians? I suppose that's always possible. Okay, so if your spa is selling you on fillers, find out if it's Restylane or Juvederm, the two that are just hyaluronic acid, and don't, don't go for the hyaluronic acid plus other substances, which is other brands, right? So yeah, there's permanent fillers out there that are bad, bad news. There's um, one with calcium hydroxyl appetite, which is basically bone paste. Uh, also not a good idea. So hyaluronic acid is, and, and the majority of them are hyaluronic acid, but there are some that are not. So just make sure if you, if you really want to remember, just remember wrestling or Juvederm and you should be safe from that perspective. Okay. Really good information. Cause if anybody's expecting me to say nobody should ever get any cosmetic, anything done, listen, my audience is doing a lot of that. I want to serve them. I want to give them good information. I don't want to be judgy and, uh, like I said, it's not the women's fault. We live in this weird culture. So. And you and I both know that the majority of holistic health practitioners, people who are out there, they're getting stuff done. Totally. <laughs> they may not admit to it, but I'm friends with a lot of them and you are too. And, and we know this stuff and it's fine. You know, it's just, I think it's doing it in the right way and doing it safely and, and not glamorizing it and, and making it, you know, oh, it's, it's as easy as getting your hair done. No, it's not. You know, we have to take it very, very seriously. Yeah. I'm not a junkie myself, but I will freely confess that I am not immune to, um, I'm, I'm not one of the ones saying I would never because, you know, I maybe, maybe I would. And a lot of times the people saying I would never are in their twenties and don't need it anyway. And when, you know, and, and how will you feel when you're in your forties or your fifties or your sixties, you know, that's oh, right. You can't really judge people when you, when you already look great, you know, and, and you haven't had to go through any of that. Okay. So that reminds me of facelifts. A friend of mine said to me 10, 10 years ago, you don't, you don't do a facelift till you're in your fifties. And I don't actually have any interest in a facelift myself, but, um, 
I just, this is not, it wasn't on your blacklist. So what do you think about facelifts? I mean, aren't you cutting the top of someone's face and pulling it up? Yes. Do you do that surgery? I do it once a week, probably. Okay. So the issue with a facelift is, yes, if there's anything you can do to avoid a facelift, by all means, do it. And I tell my patients, say, well, when do I think I'm ready for a face? When do, when should I, when do I know that I'm ready for a facelift? And I tell them basically when you hate your neck and your jowls so much that you are going to spend upwards of $15,000, go into the night for three and a half hours, get permanent scars around your ears and underneath your chin that we cannot guarantee how they're going to heal. You're going to have a two week recovery time with the potential risk of complications and an overnight stay in the hospital. And you're excited because you hate your neck and your jowls so much, <laughs> then that may be the right time for you. Okay, very well put. That was hilarious. Okay, so do we cover fillers in good detail? I feel like we did. I think so. Okay. So um, I know that you have a, a small rant that I would like to hear. I haven't heard it about um, doctors who do plastic surgery who don't have your additional years of training. They're not real plastic surgeons. How do you know the difference? Because honestly, I don't think most people know. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I put in my book, Playing God, is just how, what does it take to become a modern surgeon or specifically a modern plastic surgeon? And it's four years of medical school then you have to get into residency. Now you can't be, you know, the, the, the joke is, what do you call the person who graduates last in medical school? Doctor. <laughs> that doctor cannot be a plastic surgeon because it's so hard to get into the field. When I tried to get in, it was like one out of every 20 people could get into plastic surgery. And, and these are people who are at the top of their, of their classes and stuff. So you do four years of medical school that you have to excel in because otherwise you won't get in. You do three years, three to five years, technically three to six years of general surgery residency, where that's when you get beat down to a pulp. You do two to three years of plastic surgery residency, and then quite often you do an, an additional year of fellowship. And that then you take board exams, you do oral exams, and you have to maintain a certain ethical standard and all this stuff to become a true board certified plastic surgeon. To become a cosmetic surgeon and to operate on, on people and put an ad out there, all you have to do is finish four years of medical school and get a medical degree. That's it. And there are people who are doing that. They may do an internship year. Some of them haven't even done that because they have been grandfathered in. You do a weekend course in liposuction or you follow somebody doing breast implants for a week or two. And, all, and technically, you open up your own in-office OR and you can do anything that you want because the law allows a doctor to perform any procedure that they want to, as long as the patient signs on the dotted line. And therein lies the rub. That's where there is this, um, you know, that's, that's this little loophole that, that these phony plastic surgeons use to perform these operations. And so then they put these fancy ads out there, they buy maybe some type of an instrument or a laser or something to try to get people in the door. And, and some of them will even join phony societies, you know, because then they'll say that they're board certified by this society that nobody, you know, nobody real doctors have ever heard of, but they put a certificate on the wall and dupe people into thinking that they actually know what they're doing. Uh, and that's where you see all these stories and you watch botched on E and, and bad stuff comes out of it. Okay. Anybody thinking about plastic surgery? We're not here to sell plastic surgery. I'm certainly not. What is the question, Tony, that you ask a surgeon you're considering because your friend had a good experience with him, which I don't think is good enough research to go under the knife and let somebody potentially change your life and not necessarily in a good way. What is the question you ask them to make sure they're a quote unquote real plastic surgeon? Well, what you want to ask them is, are you certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery? Because that's, 
that's the one. The American Board of Plastic Surgery is a big thing. And obviously you wanna sit down, spend some time with that doctor. If the doctor is in a rush, is in a hurry, zips out of the room, they have their assistance to everything, then you know that that's the time spent doing your operation too, and that it's probably not the right doctor for you. Okay, critical question. Are you board certified? Are you certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery? Because you have doctors say, yes, I'm board certified, but in the back of their mind, they're saying in internal medicine, mm -hmm. but they don't tell you that. Yeah, so these are the ways that people can be squishy around that question. Okay, yeah. so I have this slight pet peeve about how people only pick doctors based on bedside manner. And I know that you know the very famous study about how um, the predictor of whether people will sue their doctor is whether he spent how many minutes he spent talking to them or whatever it is. Like people sue their doctor or not, depending on whether he was nice. And my so my pet peeve is here's what it is, is that people don't ask anything about the qualifications of their doctor or their surgeon. And and I have actually asked this question of a doctor. You have to take a deep breath to do it. You have to be very committed to having hard conversations and asking hard questions. I have actually said, where did you graduate in your class? And I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to play a game here. Okay. So now that I told you that I have done that and I don't do that because that's my only criteria, but how nice the guy is and how much we connected should not be the primary determinant of whether you hire this person or not to do a very, very important job. I'm going to, I'm going to make a prediction. If I ask you how many people in 20 years of practice have asked you where you graduated in your class, I'm going to guess that it's less than five. You're correct. It's zero. What? Zero. Stop. Zero. Okay, what should we ask our doctor? Oh my gosh. I think that's a good question, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you my answer. And the, the truth is, is I graduated in the top third of my class in medical school, but when I took my plastic surgery stuff, I was in the top 4%, I think, something like that with my plastic surgery exams. So you have to take all of that, you know, into account. And, uh, and honestly, the other th it's hard. I think a lot it's, there's no one thing that you can look at with choosing a doc. You have to look at the big, the everything, the whole big picture. Right. Cause I know doctors who've gone to really prestigious, prestigious residency programs and stuff, and they are crappy surgeons and they move from town to town because they just mess everybody up every town they go to. So unfortunately, you know, even though, even if academically you're strong, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good doctor. You know, even if you go to the right school, doesn't mean, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it. You have to take everything into account and, and look at reputation, look at the time they spend with you. Bedside manner is important. Most important if you develop a complication, because if you develop a complication and bad stuff is happening and you need somebody to, to explain things to you and to help you and to get you through it, if the doctor has poor bedside manner, that makes it so much more difficult. And you and I both know, and this is stuff you've gone over in your podcast and your information that mindset and, you know, makes a huge difference in your health. Yeah. People who stress a lot are going to have a higher risk of complications. Yeah. Know? Well, and, you know, if your doctor is kind and listens to you, that, that seems to bode well for him being, uh, you know, good at what he does as well. I mean, it shows conscientiousness. However, I, my reason to ask where did you graduate in your class is I don't want the guy who graduated in the bottom half of his no. class. I really don't like what you, you, you want to hire someone who's like good at what they do. And, you know, I, I watched, or I listened to a podcast called Dr. Death not long ago. And it's like this, this story of this dude, he's in prison now, but he, he just, you know, like he was killing people right and left. He was not a plastic surgeon, by the way, but he like 
was stoned or drunk all through med school. And then he just went from place to place and nobody wanted to go to the trouble of taking this guy's license away. And it was finally two, I think two doctors, maybe one who um, went to the trouble of stopping him from just jumping from hospital to hospital. So maybe another good question is how long have you been here in this private practice um, doing surgeries at these hospitals? Like maybe if you've been doing it for five years or more, that's a good sign. Well, and that's true because a lot of the bad doctors do move around. And I've seen that in, here in Metro Detroit, where we get a bad plastic surgeon come to town and they have ads everywhere for a year or two, and then they disappear and they go to the next town. So, yeah. So uh, like, like you said, it's not like one question is like the definitive uh, metric by which you decide whether to work with this doctor or not. But just because your neighbor had a good experience, guess what? What if your neighbor's like the one in three who has a good experience and and two out of three are bad. Like we just have to dig a little deeper and it's getting harder because the internet used to be like just good information with people who have stuff to say. And now everything's bought and paid for on the internet and you can, people can really bury bad reviews. And I think doctors can really curate good reviews, like go out of their way and pick the 10 patients who like them to give them amazing reviews, maybe even write the reviews for them. And and the patient signs off on it. Lots of crazy stuff goes on. So not to scare y'all, just to say, hey, do a little more homework. This is a big decision. So definitely. Okay, one more, one more. And I mean, you've been just so generous with your time and given us so much great information. What about thread lifts? You told me that this is a horrible procedure and they, they abandoned it 10 years ago. But but hey, like we were talking about, silicone breast implants were banned 25 years ago too. And they came back. Thread lifts are making a resurgence. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, what I have to say about that is, is that these are procedures that um, we that were really popular about 10 years ago, and doctors were performing it and, and singing its praises and oh, what a great way to do an instant facelift with no cutting and blah, 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 blah. And then they figured out that the procedures didn't work. And initially, it would look pretty decent. And then a month or two months later, they would lose most of the results. And these permanent threads that would be going through their face would still be sticking out of little holes in their face. And it was just not good. So, they, so these companies, some of them went out of business. They stopped making them. Well, what happens in our field, unfortunately, is that new doctors, there's a new generation 10 years later who don't necessarily do their homework. And they say, well, there's this new procedure called this thread lift. And they're using these absorbable sutures. So what can go wrong? And hey, look, I just did it on somebody. And look at how lifted they look and they start advertising it. Well, unfortunately, they don't work. And there was a study that was literally published just a month or two ago in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal showing that these things don't work, but unfortunately, they're out there. And there are a lot of doctors promoting it because they promote it as a simple, easy way to do a facelift. And the results don't last longer than about six months, typically. And uh, unfortunately, what's probably gonna happen with this is that over the next year or two, they're gonna eventually fall out of favor and then 10 years from now, Robin, people are going to say, hey, there's this idea of threadless <laughs> and start doing it again. You know what? I know they will because this is just the way of profit industries. When you make a ton of money on something and then it gets run out of town because it's really bad for you. I mean, we could give examples, the HCG thing. Like we already knew 40 years ago, we knew that it caused cancer and you know, just massively ramping up your human growth hormone, you know, with injections is a terrible idea, but you just let people forget, just let them forget for a decade or 15 years, and then they're going to bring it back. If there was money being made, they are going to bring it back. The Adkins diet got ran out of town on a rail, went bankrupt. The founder of it, you know, uh, did not, did not die in a healthy way. And so we, what do we do? We just wait till everybody forgets. And then we bring it back as the keto diet. So 
Anyway, let's just, you know, make sure we all think about our critical thinking skills. And before we jump on a fad on a bandwagon, just because somebody's selling it doesn't mean it's safe for us. I talk so much, Tony, about critical thinking skills and asking more questions before we jump into a fad and waste a bunch of our money or potentially cause ourselves some unwanted side effects, just chasing bunnies down a trail instead of doing the basics of being healthy. So this has been a completely amazing conversation. You've told us stuff that I don't think one in a million uh, plastic surgeons would be willing to say. You've told us so much in a in a humble and open way. I, I just am so grateful. Tell everybody what your other two books are besides Playing God coming out, or we should go get Playing God. Um, pre-order it if this comes out before it's available on Amazon. Pre-order it and um, tell them your other two books again and where they can find you and follow you. Yeah, so I've got a book in Stitches, which is the precursor to Playing God, and uh, The Age Fix, which is the one that Robin mentioned earlier. And I also have a podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show, which I have been very fortunate to have Robin on in the past. So if you're interested in kind of holistic anti-aging, then it's a podcast uh, that hopefully you may find very interesting. Well, thank you so much for being with us. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. It's my pleasure. 